Bokitov, good morning. I want to thank our sponsors for this week's Parsha class on Vayigash, Harold, and Gila Saltzman. Hakar Satov for all the blessing Hashem has bestowed on them and their family. What a beautiful sponsorship. Hashem should bestow more and more bracha on them and on all of us. This week we have the privilege of learning, studying about Parshas Vayigash. We're on page 250 in the Art Scroll Stone Chomish. And uh, we'll begin as always with our overview of the Parsha and then... We're going to delve into specific psukim. Our story has been unfolding. No matter how many times you've heard the Parsha, studied the Parsha, no matter how familiar you are with Sefer Bereshas, the book of Genesis, nevertheless, each and every year we arrive at Parsha's Vayigash, and it's as if the same drama is unfolding. The suspense, can't take it. The end of last week's Parsha, Yehuda was about to approach Yosef. Yosef has falsely accused Binyamin. And now, the story comes to a crescendo. It's the height of the drama. As Vayigash, I love you, duh. as Yehuda steps forward, he confronts Yosef. We have the luxury of knowing it's Yosef. We know good old Yosef would never do anything to harm his brothers. But Yehuda doesn't know that. Yehuda just knows that this viceroy, the second in command, the vice president of Egypt, a ruthless empire, could turn on him at any moment. So far he's kept Shimon, now he keeps Binyamin. And as Yehuda confronts him, who knows? Who knows what fate he faces? And yet, Yehuda shows that courage, the courage to step up. And I want to begin with the Dvar Torah. I say every year, it's one of my favorite, and it bears repeating every year because it's something we do every single day. That word Vayigash, Yehuda approaches, he steps forward. The Orachayim is bothered, by the way, that last week's Parsha ended off with Yehuda speaking to Yosef. So what do you mean Vayigash, love? As if Yehuda was somewhere else and now... He gained access to Yosef. He was already in the middle of talking to Yosef. So the Archaim gives an answer to that question. You can look for yourself. But Vayigash, Yehuda steps forward and he confronts Yosef. That word Vayigash appears three times in Tanakh. We have three individuals who are described as Vayigash as stepping forward. Let's see if you can help me. I give this Dvar Torah every single year. If you can't, it just means I'm going to keep giving it. <laughs> who are the three? One is our Parsha, Yehuda. We have another one that appeared earlier in Seif Ibrishis. Who is it? Vayigash? Okay, we're going to keep giving the Dvar Torah. Vayigash Avram. When Hashem says, I have to tell my beloved Avram what I'm going to do to Stom, Avram approaches Hashem. And he tries to intervene. He tries to intercede. He tries to advocate on their behalf. And the third is not in Chumash, is in Tanakh. Elio Hanavi. Elio steps forward. Vayigash. The Ramah, Ramosha Isilis, and Simon Tzadiyev Shulchanach quotes the Rokeach and says, corresponding with the three individuals and the three times Vayigash, they stepped forward, we do the same. When do we take three steps forward to imitate these three individuals? Only every Amida we say. Seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, every Amida. Shabbos, Yantif, Hanukkah, Purim, Every Amida, three times, minimally three times a day, we begin with three steps forward. You don't really have to take three steps back. One should be at a distance that they're going to be approaching. In fact, the halacha is that in Shachris, towards the end of, before the bracha of Gal Yisrael, Tilos Lekel, you're already standing up and you already have your distance. You've already laid out your space, your three steps, and we begin the Amida three steps forward. A moment ago, 
I might have been in my living room or the side of a highway or in the middle of Disney World in Yeshiva Week or maybe even in a shul. A moment ago, I was in some mundane place surrounded by distractions. But I take three steps forward and I am transported. I am moved to another place. Now I'm Lifnei Hashem. I'm standing before God, an intimate private rendezvous, the silent Amida, a conversation just between me and Him. And how do I get there? How do I transport myself from any of those mundane, secular, profane places, other than Shul, which is in itself holy, but how do I get there? Three steps forward. And who am I imitating? In whose footsteps am I walking? Vaigash. Avram, Yehuda, and Eliyahu. And who, on whose behalf are they advocating? Avram's advocating for even the wicked, stone. Avram's advocating for humanity and he's saying, you, a just loving God, how God could you do that? Vaigashi steps forward advocating for humanity. Not just the Jewish people, not just his family, not just the righteous, even for Sodom. He's advocating for humanity. And one of the groups of people, one of the concentric circles we have in mind, when we take those three steps forward and we dive in that Amida, it can't just be for us. God, I, 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 me, 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 my needs, my needs, my needs, my wants, my desires, my view of the world. But I take those three steps forward, Vayigash, first of all, it's for Sodom. It's for the equivalent of Sodom, of which there's no shortage today. They found the place of Sodom, right? So I take three steps forward, one is for humanity. And then who did um, Yehuda advocate for? His family. For whom did Yehuda advocate? For family, for Binyamin, for his brother. The second we say to Hashem, I care about humanity. So you know what I saw in the news? That there was a tsunami or a hurricane or an economic collapse or whatever crisis somewhere in the world. I've approached you, I'm confronting you to care about humanity, all your children. And then the next inner concentric circle is like Yehuda, who says, I'm approaching you on behalf of my brothers. There's rockets aimed at my brothers. Nebuch, a couple, a pregnant woman, is shot, a baby's life lays in the balance. Rebona Shalom. My brothers, my sisters, Vayigash. This Amid is not just for me. Let me make more money, let my team win, let my children give me nachas, let my... It's not just me. I care about my brothers and sisters, I care about the whole world. And whom, on whose behalf, for whom did Eliyahu advocate? For the Rebona Shalom himself. When he defends the honor of Hashem, quote Hashem, Vaigash, I say, Hashem, there's such immorality and corruption and distortion of your vision in this world. I approach you and I dive into you for you. And so the Ramah quotes the Rokeach, the three steps we take forward every Amidah, we're imitating what Yehuda does at the opening of our Parsha. Vaigash, I love Yehuda. It's not just about us, it's about caring for others. This I share every year because I think it inspires. First of all, because you forget it, but also because I think it inspires the way we dive in our Amida, and it's really, really important that as we're taking those three steps forward, even the three steps, they're not insignificant. The three steps are, they're an exercise that gets our mind focused in the right place. As I take these three steps forward, let me focus my Amida, not just about me, myself, my family, but about other greater good. The Jewish people, humanity, and Hashem Himself. But I want to add to it something I saw this year from the Imre Chaim, the Vishnu Tzarebbe. I once quoted an Imre Chaim, and a good friend of mine bought me a copy of the Imre Chaim. So now I look at it every week. Of Chaim Meir, a Vishnu 
So then Rechaim says the beginning of the parsha the following. He quotes from Rav Noach Malkovich, quoting a Maimar Chazal. The Gemara Baruchos says that Chasidim Rishonim the Mishnah, Chasidim Rishonim Ayishom Shalachas Kodem Atzvilim Espalim Kedeshi Yechavnu. We know the early righteous people, they wouldn't just rush into davening and come late and flurry, throw on the towels and fill in or rush into Mincha and already ending Ashraya. Benachas. They'd come, they'd sit, they'd meditate, and they'd reflect, and they'd take an hour to clear their mind and to focus their heart so that when they had that conversation with Hashem, they were fully present. They were really there for that conversation. Chasidim Rishonim would spend an hour. Commentary say... That's the origin of Psuke de Zimra, which doesn't take us an hour, doesn't take us a half hour, doesn't take us a quarter of an hour. But Psuke de Zimra takes that place. It's there to focus our thoughts, our energies. And those are the themes of Psuke de Zimra. The two themes of Psuke de Zimra, not for now, but the two themes are seeing Hashem through nature and seeing Hashem through history. And now that I see and feel Hashem, I can trace Him in my history, I can appeal to Him for my destiny. So I spend a few moments reflecting, thinking about who is he, who am I, what is our relationship, feeling his presence, and now I'm ready for a conversation. So the, the Mishnah Bracha says, Chasidim Rishonim would dedicate time, they wouldn't run into davening, the cell phone is still buzzing and beeping and vibrating. No, they would run in and they'd meditate, they'd reflect, they'd relax, they'd be focused. So asks the Imre Chaim, what were they davening, what were they reflecting on, what were they thinking about? All that time, a whole hour, which for us is instead of 60 minutes, is 6 minutes. So what are we supposed to be thinking about? So he says something amazing. He says, you know what they were thinking about? They were offering a tefillah. What do you mean they were offering a tefillah? I thought they did this before they began to offer tefillah. So what tefillah were they offering? And you know what the tefillah was? Hashem, I pray to you that you help me pray to you. I'm praying to you that you help me pray to you. It's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to lose focus. It's so easy to lack priorities. It's so easy to not feel connected. It's so easy to struggle that tefillah be meaningful. So Hashem, my first tefillah is that I succeed at tefillah. That's my tefillah. And he says, quoting from the Baal Shem Tov, we just said this in Halal for the eighth time yesterday, Ana Hashem Hoshiyana, Eina Ela Lashon Tefillah. Ana Hashem Hoshiyana. The Ana Hashem Hoshiana is a tefillah for tefillah. It sounds counterintuitive. What do you mean? You're praying to God so you could pray? I believe we should pray to God for Amuna. Hashem, I don't see you. I don't feel you. I'm feeling pretty distanced from you. But you know what? I'm jumping. I'm leaping in. I'm going to dive into you that I feel Amuna. I'm going to dive in for you my bitachon. I'm diving into you from Dveikus. It's counterintuitive, it sounds illogical. And yet, the Imrechaim says, that's the very first, the foundational tefillah, is that we feel tefillah. The foundational tefillah is, Hashem, I pray that you help me pray to you. V'zehu, and that's what it means, Vayigash elav Yehuda, Vayomer bi Adoni. Adoni is not Adoni, turning to Yosef, Adoni, my master, but rather, Vayigash elav Yehuda, Yehuda steps forward, Vayomer bi, not Adoni, read it, Differently, meaning what Yehuda was saying is before he turned to Yosef and asked Yosef, he said, Hashem, I'm davening to you that you put the right words in my mouth. Put the right words in my mouth. Let me say the right thing. It's a tefillah for tefillah. I'm davening that you put the right words in my mouth, that you help me articulate eloquently, that you help me find expression to what is in my heart. 
Yidaber na avdecha, daber ba'aznei adoni, she'uchal espalot filo ru'uya kideboi. So that is a theme of Vayigash, of Yehuda also. When we take those three steps forward, why am I sharing this with you? Because I think the Imre Chaim very much beautifully works with the Rokeach, the Ramah quotes. When I take my three steps forward, I'm thinking about those three Vayigash, the three individuals. I'm not only caring about myself, I'm advocating for others. But I'm also, as I take those three steps forward, Ki'ilu, taking a deep breath and saying, Hashem... I have a whole to-do list and there's so many things I'm anxious about and so many things I'm worried about and so many things on my mind and so many things on my shoulders. Hashem, help them all fall away and let me for the next few moments be with you. Help me find the right words. Help me feel connected. Help me walk away transformed. That we use the three steps forward imitating Yehuda, the Vayigash. The three steps forward is our opportunity to daven that we have a successful davening. To daven that we feel connected. To daven that it all work out. Okay, Vayigash Elav. So Yehuda confronts Yosef, and uh, and he quotes Yosef. Adoni shalos avadav leimor. You asked me, Hayesh lachem av o ach. You asked, do I have a father or a brother? And we told you we have an older father, and we have a younger brother, and our other brother died, and our father is alone, and he doesn't have his wife, and he's gonna. So as we mentioned last week, this is what Yosef needs to hear to know that his father wasn't in on it. There's a whole debate, Rav Ben Nun, Rav Meidan, a back and forth. Did Yosef suspect his father was in on it? We're not going to elaborate now. I referenced it the last couple of weeks too, and we've talked about it in the past. But here are the key words. When Yosef hears, what do you mean? You have a brother who died, that your father thinks died? You mean your father wasn't in on it? He didn't orchestrate or choreograph me to, to arrive here? Now he's getting ready to reveal himself. But on these words, when when uh, Yehuda says, you ask me, do I have a father or a brother? Rabbi Soloveitchik has an amazing memory from his youth. An amazing memory. He says he was his childhood, seven or eight years old. I don't know, any of you remember seven or eight years old? He remembers seven or eight years old in a small town in white Russia. All the Jewish boys attended a little cheder. It was a dreary day in the winter in January. It was cloudy and overcast. And the Torah portion was Vayigash. Hanukkah had just ended, like this year, taking away with it the joyous holiday spirit. A long, dark winter lay ahead for us cheder boys. We had to rise when it was dark and return home, holding a lantern. Nightfall was so early. That day, the cheder boys were in a depressed mood, lazy and listless. We chanted mechanically the first psukim of Ayigash in a dull monotone, droning the words in Hebrew and translating them into Yiddish. One boy finished reciting Yosef's question. Do you have a father? Yes, we have a father. Going between the Hebrew and the Yiddish, the classic cheder chant. And then the Rav describes. Then something unusual happened. Our teacher, a Chabadnik, suddenly jumped to his feet and with a gleam in his eyes motioned to the reader, Stop! He turned to me, said the Rav, and he addressed me with the Russian word, meaning assistant to the rabbi. The teacher asked me, What kind of question did Yosef ask his brothers? Hayesh lachemav. I guess even at six or seven, the Rav was the son of the great Rav Moshe Salavechik, the grandson of the great Rav Chaim Brisker. So his Chabadnik Cheder Rebbe looked at him and said, Okay, you little Rav, you little Rebbe, already six, seven years old. What did Yosef mean when he asks Yehuda and the brothers, Hayesh Lachem Av? Of course they had a father. Everyone has a father. The only person who didn't have a father is Adam Arishon, created by God. Every other human being biologically has a father. So what kind of question is that? So the Rav says at six or seven years old, or seven or eight years old, he tried to offer the answer. Yosef just wanted to find out whether the father was still alive. Hayesh lachamav, you have a father meant. Do you have a living father? 
So if so, the Rebbe the Malamed said, Yosef should have phrased the question differently. He should have said, is your father still alive? It was a useless to argue with our teacher. He was now no longer addressing only us little boys. He began to speak rhetorically as if some mysterious guest had just entered the cold room. Yosef, our teacher pronounced as if from a pulpit, wanted to know whether his brothers were still attached to their roots and origins. Are you, Yosef was asking, rooted in your father? Do you look at him the way branches or blossoms look on their roots? Do you see your father as the foundation of your existence? Do you see him as your provider and sustainer? Or are you just like rootless shepherds wandering from place to place, from pasture to pasture who forget their origin? Our Rebbe suddenly stopped addressing the invisible visitor and turned his focus directly to us. Raising his voice, he asked, Are you truly humble? Do you look down condescendingly at your old father as representing an archaic tradition? Do you think your old father is also capable of telling you something new and exciting? Something challenging? Something you didn't know before? Or are you so arrogant and vain that you deny dependence on your father upon the source? Our teacher exclaimed, Hayish lachem av! Do you have a father? Pointing at my study mate Yitzchak, who was considered the town's prodigy. The teacher turned to him and said, Who do you think knows more? You know more because you're so well versed in Gemara, or your father, the blacksmith, no more, even though he can barely read Hebrew? Are you proud of your father? When we recognize the supremacy of our father, ipso facto, we accept the supremacy of our universal father in heaven, Avinu Shabashamayim. Said the Rav, I will never forget our teacher's novel interpretation of the Yosef story. It's really is an extension of what we spoke about last week, the role of grandparents and the Mesora and transmission and teaching the younger generation that there is no generation gap and that we have something to offer them. And just because technologically they've progressed doesn't mean that we discard or out with the old. For us, we're rooted in the old. And the imagery, remember, we saw about the menorah. Not like Beis Shammai, it's all about the future, how many days left, but like Beis Hillel, I can't light today's candle unless I'm also going to include yesterday's candle and the day before that and the day before that until I get to eight. And said the Rav, based on his Malamed, his Rebbe's, Cheder Rebbe's Pshat, you can say the same thing about the other question. Because Yosef asked, Tayish Lachem Av, do you have a father? He also asked, Tayish Lachem Ach, do you have a brother? Yosef wanted to know, does your awareness of time stop at the present moment or do you consider future generations? Do you plan for the world of tomorrow enveloped in the midst of non-being? Do you have a vision? Do you believe in the improbable? And the brother's answer was, yes. We have an Av Zakein. We have a bright, vivacious, talented young child. A Yeld Zakunim Katan. Our young brother who represents the world of tomorrow. The young child challenged us to make possible the birth of future generations. And the Rav concluded, here in America we have freedom. Many privileges. Anti-Semitism poses no real threat, he said at the time. Yet we are committed to Eretz Yisrael. We fight for the possession of the land, continue to sacrifice young lives for each sand dune, for each rocky hill. Why? The answer is about 3,500 years ago, our Av Zakein Avram walked behind his flock on those sandy trails and by traversing the land endowed it with Kedusha. And centuries later, a prophet and king named David played the harp and sang beautiful hymns. The hills of our ancient homeland, which echo with ancient melodies and fiery words, are worth the sacrifice of our youth. To our collective memory and our loyalty to our Av Zakein, justify alienating the world at large, is it logical or paradoxical? Why don't we free ourselves of the Avzakein? Why don't we adapt to the current zeitgeist? We cannot because we are immensely concerned with our existence as a religious community. No other nation has ever cared as much about spiritual survival. The young child challenges us to care for tomorrow. So to be a Jew is to live in those three dimensions simultaneously. The past, the present, and the future. It's to embrace the Avzakein. Hayesh lachem av. Are you rooted in the old traditions? Do you care about parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, where we come from? 
But at the same time, are we also rooted in our brothers and sisters and in forging a greater and a better tomorrow? Yosef obviously reveals himself. I want to make sure we get to our psukim, so we're going to accelerate our summary here. Yosef reveals himself to his brothers. And Yosef, he says, I'm Yosef, which Chazal say, In those two words, Yosef gave the starkest muster of all time. Yosef ripped his brothers. They were devastated, traumatized, broken. Really? What did he say? He said, Ani Yosef. Ani Yosef. With those two words? And the answer is yes. Sometimes when we understand the consequence of our action, when we have a sort of a bird's eye vision on everything we've done and what it's led to, when we see the consequences and feel the weight of responsibility, that's the biggest musr. That's the biggest musr. We don't need to have harsh words. Simply confronting a reality that we created is in itself the biggest and the strongest musr that we have. Ayomer Yosef elachav ani Yosef. That is the starkest musr. And he says, which is a bizarre question. This we've studied in the past. We won't revisit. What do you mean, is my father still alive? You just had a conversation where Yehuda's argument was, you asked about our father. We told you he's still alive. He's suffering if I don't bring back Binyamin. He already lost one son. You got to give me Binyamin. And Yosef says, wow, I'm ready to reveal myself to you. And I'm Yosef. Is dad alive? What do you mean is dad alive? He just told you that the whole reason he was arguing to bring Binyamin back is because dad's alive. What a bizarre question for Yosef to ask. Is father still alive? And we've developed that in the past. You can listen online or look into it more yourself. What motivates Yosef? What precipitates his revealing himself? What is Yehuda doing that they failed to do for Yosef? He's standing up for a brother. Instead of leaving Binyamin to languish as they had left Yosef to languish first in the pit and then to be sold... Now, and what does Binyamin have in common that no one else, no other brother does with Yosef? In other words, Yosef has choreographed circumstances to mimic or to imitate what he went through. And he does so to study whether the brothers have learned their lesson and they'll act differently. And now, they've passed the test. Not all of them. That's also a question. Where was everyone else? And why do they just let Yehuda do all the talking? And why are they silent and passive and in the background? That's also a worthwhile question. Where was everyone else? Why is Yehuda the only one to put himself out there to confront Yosef and step up? But when he does, Yosef says, the brother closest to me, Binyamin, who has the same father and mother as I, now they didn't leave him. They didn't abandon him as they did me. They learned their lesson. Tshuva Gemura is being back in the exact same circumstance and doing things differently. So Yosef, in order to enable them to achieve complete tshuva, tshuva gemura, orchestrates things to be the exact same circumstance. But now they act very differently. Now instead of leaving him, now they step up on behalf of Binyamin. And when Yehuda does, first of all he learns his father wasn't on it. Because Yehuda describes his father as being inconsolable. He also learns the brothers are willing to step up, at least Yehuda, on their behalf, steps up for Binyamin. And now he's ready to reveal himself. The moment Yosef discloses his identity, he stops to be a ruler over Israel, ceding sovereignty to Yehuda. Providence willed that Yosef would lose and Yehuda would win. The Rav has a whole approach, but the reason the brothers were quiet is they interpreted that there was a cosmic conflict taking place. This wasn't simple sibling rivalry. Yehuda and Yosef represent two approaches, two worldviews. They represent fathers of 
of multiple, I don't want to say nations within our nation, but Yehuda and Yosef is a cosmic conflict. It's a clash. And they sat back to see it unfold. Who was going to persevere and triumph? Who would win? And even as our story unfolds, and maybe we're rooting for Yosef. Yosef, after all, is the victim. Yosef's the victim. He's the underdog. And we're rooting for Yosef. But does Yosef win? From whom does the monarchy descend in Judaism? Not from Yosef. Yosef maybe wins as the curtain closes on Sefer Bereshis. It's Yosef who's vindicated. His brothers come and they grovel and they fear for their lives. His dreams of their bowing down to him have come true. From the close, the curtain falls on Bereshis. It looks like Yosef has won, but it's not Yosef. It's Yehuda, who's the father of monarchy, of royalty, of King David, of Mashiach. To understand this drama, we have to retrace the story of Yaakov, says the Rav. Lovin had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Yaakov loved Rachel very much, and he tells Lovin he's ready to serve seven years for her. Rachel certainly reciprocated Yaakov's love, but she acquiesced to the scheme devised by Lovin to substitute Leah. Not only did Rachel not tell Yaakov about her father's plan, but she cooperated in the conspiracy sharing the password with Leah. How could Rachel participate in the deceit? How could she forego her love for and devotion to Yaakov? The narrative involves two attributes of Hashem. Chesed and Gvura. Leah represents Midas HaGvura, the dignity and majesty of man. Her cooperation with love and scheme demonstrates courage and valor. Rachel was the opposite of Leah. She was the tragic heroine who lived for others. She surrendered her rights so others could find the happiness denied to them. Rachel represents the Midah of Chesed. Yehuda was the son of Leah. His personality radiated power, authority, and prestige. Yaakov described him as a lion, the warrior who relentlessly pursues his enemies. Consider the firmness and majestic fearlessness Yehuda exhibited when he argued with Yosef about Binyamin. After all, the viceroy could have done anything to him. But Yosef, Yosef is the son of Rachel. His mission is to sacrifice, to retreat from hard-won positions. He sacrificed many times, but his real sacrifice was the way he treated his brothers when they were at his mercy. Only a son of Rachel could offer friendship and kindness to the same brothers who had caused him so much misery. Yosef personified chesed. So Yosef is chesed, the chesed of his mother, his mama Rachel. If Rachel gave, loved Leah and gave her the simanim, even though it meant giving up her love, Yosef was willing to forgive his brothers, even though he could have responded very harshly or vengefully. Yaakov, uh, Yosef is the son of Rachel. While Yehuda who has the courage to step forward, to assert himself, authority. He has the gvura, the strength, the might of Leah. Who's the king? Which quality? A king needs midas ha-chesed or midas ha-gvura? The Rebona Shalom decided in favor of the son who represented gvura. The king is the trustee and leader of the people. He has to display gvura in all aspects, the ability to acquire, to defend, to possess, to protect. A life sacrificed for others, a life of chesed, is appropriate for the individual but the king cannot sacrifice at the expense of a nation. So Yosef and his chesed were wonderful qualities for an individual and qualities for us to absorb. But it's Yehuda and his gvura. It's a sefta and brachos goes through three understandings. Why is Yehuda the one who becomes king? Is it because he saved Yosef's life? He said, don't let him die. Sell him. Or is it because he turned to Tamar and he said, Sadka many. she's more righteous than I. He had the capacity to admit and ultimately, ultimately the um, Medrash concludes it's neither. You can't say Yehuda was awarded because either of those included his own mistakes. 
But rather it's because Yehuda is the progenitor of Nachshon ben Aminadav. Nachshon ben Aminadav, when everyone else stood still, debated, criticized, told everyone else what they should do. Nachshon didn't do any of that. What did he do? He took action. He started walking. And he was the catalyst of redemption. And these are the qualities of monarchy, the qualities of royalty. What it means to be a Jewish king is to take responsibility for another, is to admit when we're wrong, and is to lead by example, not wait for others. So in this cosmic conflict, clash between Yehuda and Yosef, which I shared with you the Rav's view, his brother of Aaron Soloveitchik has another perspective of Yehuda and Yosef, what they represent of two worldviews. There's many ways that you could describe it, but in that cosmic clash, however you describe the core of it, who is triumphant? It's Yehuda. Even though Sefer Bracious makes one think or root for, for Yosef, ultimately it is, ultimately it is Yehuda. Yosef identifies himself to his brothers and he tells us that he hugs Binyamin in that moment. In that moment of revealing himself, Yosef collapses on his younger brother Binyamin's shoulder and the Torah tells us that they both begin to cry. Where's the Pasuk? Page 254. Yosef collapses on his younger brother's shoulder and he cries, and Benjamin cries on his neck. And they each cry to one another. I love those words. You know why? It comes full circle. What happened in Parshas Vayeshev? They couldn't even talk. It's not that they couldn't talk about the things they disagreed about. They couldn't even talk about the things they agree about. They just stopped talking to one another. And here, when they reunite, when they reconcile, how does the Torah describe their reconciliation as? Dibru echav ito. We have to keep talking to each other. We can't stop talking because you voted for that, or you believe in that policy, or you root for that team, or you observe in that way, or you wear that type of yarmulke. We can't stop talking. That's where Senes Chinam comes. We end up in Mitzrayim. We end up in Golis. When we stop talking, we can disagree. But we have to disagree agreeably. And we have to keep talking and keep communicating and have relationships with one another. So it all began, why? And now when they're back together, So Yosef and Benjamin collapse on one another's neck and they, and they cry. Rashi quotes the Medrash. Why are they crying? Yosef is crying in anticipation of the destruction of the two Batei Mikdash that would be in Binyamin's territory. And Binyamin's crying, why? For the destruction of the Mishkan that would be housed in the territory of Yosef. Does that make sense? 22 years of estrangement. 22 years of absence. They finally see one another. Wouldn't you want to say they're crying tears of joy? It's such a Jewish thing to have to make it sad and mournful. And yeah, 22 years, so take a minute and be happy. It's okay to be happy once in a while. Give yourself permission. So why not say they were crying tears of joy, tears of reconciliation, tears of comfort. 22 years of alienation, estrangement, and we're crying, and they're crying. Yosef's crying because the two Batei Mikdash that will be in Binyamin's territory will be destroyed. And Binyamin's crying because the Mishkan in Yosef's territory. Enough with the sadness and the crying. and what hasn't even happened yet. You're crying. It's in the future. What's going on here? The first Majitza Rebbe, Rabbi Yisrael Tarab, in the Sefer Divri Yisrael, has an amazing interpretation. 
He says, Yosef and Benyamin are the only two sons of both Yaakov and Rachel. When they embrace them, they cry, it's bittersweet tears. After all, they were so happy to be reunited. But at the moment that they're reunited, at the moment they're reunited, they think about what had kept them apart. And what had kept them apart for 22 years, 22 years they can never make up for. 22 years they can never get back. And what had kept them apart? Sinaschinam. And the moment they realized it was Sinaschinam that kept them apart, they realized just because they're back together now doesn't mean they're back together permanently. That ugly Sinaschinam will rear its head again. And when does it rear its head again? With the destruction of the Mishkan and the destruction of the two Batid Mikdash. And so says the Divrei Yisrael, the Mojit Rebbe, you know why they're crying? They're not trying to ruin what should be a happy moment. They're crying at the realization that the circumstance that led to their estrangement to begin with is not over. The lost 22 years, they can't get back because of Sinas Chinam. That Sinas Chinam will continue to rear its ugly head, and it does. And so they hug. But here's the beautiful part of the Majitir's insight. When they hug and they cry, they're already providing the solution. How are they providing the solution to Sinas Chinam? Says the Majitir Rebbe, because what is each one crying about? They're not crying about their own loss. Each one is crying for the other. The antidote to Sinas Chinam is Avas Yisrael, Avas Chinam. Cry for someone else's pain. Feel their suffering. Feel a sense of empathy and sympathy and relieve their pain and suffering. Don't just cry for yourself, what's going on in your life. Think about and care about others. The antidote to Sinas Chinam is Avas Chinam. And that's what they were demonstrating. They cried because of the realization that Sinas Chinam would rear its ugly head again, but they provided the antidote by crying for one another instead of crying for themselves. Shortly we're going to observe Asara Beteves. Sinas Chinam in the middle of the winter, it's not Tisha B'Av the three weeks, why are we talking about this? Because it's going to be Asara Beteves. Thousands of years ago, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege on Yerushalayim. And that began the process that ultimately ended with the destruction of Yerushalayim. And why did Nebuchadnezzar succeed? And why did we lose the Beis HaMikdash? Because of Sinas Chinam. You cannot learn Parshas Vayigash, you cannot learn Sefer Bereshis, and not feel moved to want to do something about the Sinas Chinam, which is still so pervasive. It's still so pervasive. It's crazy how many times we've read Parshas Vayigash. Jewish people have been around thousands of years, and we just don't learn our lessons. We still sit in judgment of one another and critical of one another, and totally marginalizing one another, and totally putting down one another, and hating one another. And that's why we have what we have. And that's why pregnant women are shot, and anti-Semites thrive, because when we can't get along with ourselves, why should we expect anyone else to love us or respect us? So when the two collapse and cry on one another's shoulders, they're not ruining a moment, they're capturing for us what that moment was all about, and the antidote of how we go forward. Paro joins the party in, uh, in recognition that Yosef has now revealed himself, and uh, they send for Yaakov and for the rest of the family. Yaakov undertakes the journey to come see Yosef, and uh, we have the total of 70 descendants that come to Mitzrayim. They arrive. We have this incredible conversation between Yaakov and Paro. We've studied this before too, a deeply disturbing conversation. Yosef must have anticipated with great excitement. Yaakov, his spiritual father, and Paro, his boss, his mentor, the one who gave him this chance. They're going to meet, they're going to have a conversation. 
the ruler of the world with the greatest human being alive, Yaakov. And what do they talk about? It's the most mundane, pedestrian conversation of all time. Paro asks Yaakov, how old are you? And Yaakov says, I'm such and such old, but my life's been pretty rough and terrible. Yaakov gives Paro a bracha, and that's it. That's it? Talk about world peace, economic cycles. Talk about, I, I don't know what. That's the conversation. So we've discussed this in the past. Two or three different interpretations of what's really going on. Ksava Kabbalah, Rav Yaakov Mecklenburg has a beautiful insight. We've discussed several interpretations. I was going to share with you one from Rav Chaim Shemlevitz. We'll save it for next year because I want to get to our psukim. You see the self-restraint, the discipline I'm practicing? <laughs> I'll, save it for, I'll save it for next year. But it's a deeply, uh, it's, a, it's a puzzling part of our Parsha. It should be a highlight of the Parsha. Yaakov and Paro, a few minutes to be a fly on the wall to hear what do they talk about? And that's it? That's what they talk about? And then Yosef, Yosef trains his brothers when they're going to go in to meet Paro, he trains them what to say. He trains them what to say. Why? Why is he so worried? Is he worried they're going to embarrass him? What is he worried about? So Basilevich says, why was it necessary for Yosef to coach his brothers regarding how to address Paro? Paro suspected that each of Yosef's brothers were as intelligent as Yosef himself. He therefore wanted to disperse them throughout the country to become assets to Egyptian society. Under such circumstances, Yosef feared his brothers would assimilate among the Egyptians. He instructed his brothers to tell Paro they were cattlemen and shepherds, and they would not give up this vocation as it was their family tradition. Since herding sheep was frowned upon in Egyptian society, Paro would be unable to scatter them throughout Egypt. So it wasn't that Yosef was worried they were going to embarrass him. It was strategic. Yosef was worried that if Paro will think, well, they must have his brilliant minds. They're each hedge fund accountants, investors, broker. You know, they're going to be as brilliant and do great things for our economy, just like Yosef. I'm going to scatter them all over. So Yosef's response to protect from that, he coached his brothers, just say we're simple shepherds. That's our family tradition. We can't deviate from it. And by doing so, you'll be protected from assimilating. Okay, so that's the overview of our incredible, incredible Parsha, the crescendo of the story, the drama that has been unfolding until now. Let's go back and look at our specific psukim. And we're going to deal with when Paro joins the party which is on page 254. It's where we left off last year, by the way. I try, I'm trying to now pick up each time the psukim where we last left off. So page 254, we are on Perak Memhei, Pasuk Tes Zayin. Perak Memhei, Pasuk Tes Zayin. Okay. Yeah. Yosef's done the big reveal. He tells his brothers, I'm Yosef. And the sound is heard throughout, throughout the land. The sound is heard in the house of Paro. And what is it proclaiming? That the brothers of Yosef have arrived. And Paro was very pleased. Paro was very satisfied with hearing that news. Rashi says, It means that the sound was heard in the house of Paro. And Paro was very pleased. Why was Paro so pleased? Why was Paro happy to hear that Yosef's brothers had arrived? I might have been displeased. Till now I had Yosef's full attention. He didn't have brothers to play golf with or go to the, the Egyptian football game with. 
So now he has brothers. He's going to want to spend time with them. Now I have to share power. Now I have to share Yosef. He's going to be distracted. There's others competing for my attention. And yet Paro is very happy. Vayitav. Vayitav be'inei Paro. Why is he so happy? Says the Sforno. Shachishav shemikan ve'elach tiya ashkachaz Yosef ala aretz. Lo kashkachaz ger manhig. Kashkachaz ezrach choshev lashevez ba'aretz hu uzaro. Ulezei yashkiach b'cholev lahativ la'aretz le'yoshveha. Because he said, you know, Yosef until now, he's on a temporary visa. Yosef is here as a tourist. Really, his land is Canaan. It's where his brothers are. It's where his father is. That's where his destiny is. Yosef's only here temporarily. So I'm only getting part of Yosef. Yosef cares about my Egyptian empire, but he cares about it as a tourist, as a stranger, as someone who plans to leave. But now that his brothers have arrived... Now Yosef will plant himself here firmly. He'll no longer be a tourist on a temporary visa. He's going to get citizenship. As a citizen, he'll be even more invested in the well-being of this land, of this country. And therefore, Paro's very happy. Paro's very happy. Maybe you have to compete with the brothers for Yosef's attention. But Yosef will be even more focused and invested in and caring about the future of Egypt. That's the Sfarno. The Ramban gives a different reason. The Ramban says, until now, Paro has been pretty embarrassed. This prisoner, this guy got out of jail, and he has no family. He's a total vagabond. Here you have somebody, he has no family, he has no yichos. He was in prison. He's a criminal. And that's who our vice president is? Viata. Okay, no comments. Pretty good. Viata. Bevoi lav achim nechpadim. Venoda ki hagun lehis yatsei lefnei malachim. Samchu kulam bedavar. Says the Ramban, now the brothers arrive. And the brothers are aristocracy. The brothers descend from Yaakov. This person who is an anonymous figure, who has no yichus who's risen to a position of distinction, but frankly, it's an embarrassment for the people that a criminal with no yichus has been their leader. Now the brothers arrive. And with the brothers is a big yichus tree. With the brothers is... is credibility. With the brothers is prestige. And therefore, Vayitav Adavar, Vayitav Beinei Paro, Paro is very happy. He's number two. He's no longer curious. Who is he? What's his background? Who is this strange criminal who he plucked out of prison? Now he sees who this person is because he sees his brothers and because he sees his father. And therefore he's satisfied. And therefore he's satisfied. The Archaim HaKadosh says, V'akol neshma leimor, perish liyoshek var hodiyah kasov, what is this coal that made its way through the palace? What happens when Yosef couldn't hold back anymore? How does he react? He lets out a scream and a cry. So they'd all heard the cry. They all heard the scream. They wanted to know what's going on. Why was Vaitav Paro? Why was he happy? They heard Yosef scream. They heard a cry. Maybe he had a heart attack. Maybe he dropped the most expensive vase in the palace. Maybe, who knows what? Stock market, the Egyptian market crashed. 
Who knows why Yosef screamed, why he cried? So when they found out that the source of his scream and his cry was of joy, that his brother is the, reun- the, the reunion with his brothers, that's Vetav Paro. So Paro is very sad. Oh, thank God. That's why he cried. Thank God. That's why he screamed. So the Pasuk tells us, Vetav Bene Paro. Paro was happy. Three interpretations why he was happy. Svarna says he was happy selfishly because he thought Yosef's no longer just a tourist. Now he'll be a full citizen. And now he's invested in our future. He's going to do even greater things for our country. That was the Tzvarno. The Ramban says, Paro and the people are happy because instead of some anonymous guy with no yichas criminal as their leader, they see he comes from a prestigious family. Uah, such a prestigious family. And the Orachayim says, no, Paro was happy because he clarified what was the source of that scream, what was the source of that cry. So Paro turns to Yosef and he says, So Paro says to Yosef, tell your brothers, load up the animals and go directly to the land of Canaan. Your brothers who are here, load up, pack your luggage, get going. I want you to head back up to Canaan. And why should you go back up to Canaan? Load the animals, pack the suitcases, load the car, and start heading back. And bring back your father and your families and come to me. I will give you the best of the land. You'll eat from the fat of the land. I'm going to give you the best of everything. I'm going to give you the best of everything. So Paro tells Yosef, and he says, take for yourselves to the Egyptian, the, the wagons, for your small children, for your wives, bring your father and come. And don't worry about your furniture. Don't worry about moving what you've accumulated in Canaan, because I'm going to give you everything here. Just get down here. Go get your family. Go get everyone. Bring them down here. I just want you down here. And leave everything. Don't worry about everything there. Just get down here. Whatever you need here, it's all going to be yours. Says Rashi, As Tov Eretz Mitzrayim Eretz Goshen, Niva Ve'ino Yudeh, Man Niva Paro had some form of a prophecy here when he was telling them, I'm going to give you the best of the land, which was Goshen. Whenever the Torah says, I'm going to give you chelav, it means the fat of the land. Land doesn't have fat. It means the best of. The best of the land. Tell them, I told them. Paro is telling Yosef, telling the brothers, telling Yosef, tell the brothers, this comes from me. It's a directive from me. Go back to Canaan, gather your things, leave the furniture, get your families, and get down here. No, this is one, with my permission. No, I'm the one instructing you to do it. Why is that important? Look at the Ramban. Why is it important that Paro is the one sending? Yosef has been so honest, so honest, he hasn't taken one paper clip, not one pencil. He hasn't made one long-distance phone call. He hasn't made one copy on the copy machine. 
Yosef has been so honest to Paro that Paro anticipates that Yosef won't want to use the palace's travel agent and travel account to buy the tickets. So Paro has to say to him, put it on my cheshbon. Buy the tickets on me. Send my wagons. The Ramban says, Paro's emphasis that tell them I sent them is testament to how honest Yosef is that he would never use Paro's resources for himself. So Paro has to say, this comes from me. I'm the one sending. That's what the Ramban says. Svarno says, Paro, so the Svarno has a different interpretation. Svarno says, why is Paro insisting it come from him? Because he knows that if wagons, if a bunch of limousines arrive at Yaakov's door with a message that Paro sent these for you, Yaakov can't hesitate, he can't resist, he can't say no. He wants Yaakov down there. He wants Yaakov down there, he wants the brothers down there, he wants everyone residing there full time for one of the three reasons we said. It adds prestige to Yosef, or he thinks they're brilliant businessmen, or whatever reason he wants Yosef fully invested in Egypt. And so the best strategy to get Yaakov to come and to not, and to not say no is to send his own limos, his own wagons, and to tell Yaakov that he, Paro, is the one who sent them. Okay, good. Now, Rabbi Soloveitchik says here, Take these Egyptian wagons. It's a funny description. Egyptian wagons. Apparently the wagons were manufactured exclusively in Egypt under the auspices and, and imprimatur of the king using technology that was most advanced at the time. In the Song of the Sea, Parashas B'Shalach, Az Yashir, the Jewish people exclaimed, Paro's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. The chariot was clearly an imposing military weapon. The wagons were therefore most likely under the strict control of Paro. No one could sell or send them abroad without his direct permission. Paro said, Command us, take the wagons from the land of Egypt. When Yosef sent the wagons, he did it upon Paro's specific orders. Thus, when Yaakov saw the wagons, he realized immediately, Yosef must be close to the king. If the message is Yosef is still alive, come, and Paro's the one sending that message, what does it mean? That Yosef must be close with the king, and Yaakov is going to therefore come to find out more, more about that. Bring your father down. The Jewish people responded. Yosef gave them these wagons based on Paro, and he also gave them provisions for the way. Packed them a lunchbox, packed them some snacks to take some blue chips. He gave each of them uh, clothing. To each he gave a change of clothing. But to Binyamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and not one change of clothing, five times it. The Gemara, by the way, is very critical of Yosef. Why would you be critical of Yosef here? What's there to be critical of? What in the world is Yosef thinking? It's Gemara Megillah Tazayim, Ahmed Beis. What's Yosef thinking? This whole thing began, why? Favoritism. Because Yosef was favored, he got the colored coat, nobody else got it. And what's his response to it? 
to treat his brother with whom he has the most in common better than the other brothers. The Gemara questions how he could have done it. There's several answers, but one of which is, this is a continuation of Yosef giving the brothers the chance at Shuva Gemura. He's continuing to orchestrate things to be exactly the way they were and to test whether the brothers were going to act the same way or whether the brothers were now going to act and react a little bit differently. And to his father, he sent ten donkeys, the best of Egypt, and ten she donkeys with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey when they would, when they would come back. He sent his brothers and they go. And he's got a message for his brothers. What does that mean? Don't become tirgazu rogez, don't become angry, don't become agitated. What does that mean? So Rashi has three interpretations. Says Rashi, Don't get so caught up in a halachic debate. You're, so, you're going to be against Bittu Torah, you're going to want to take advantage of every moment, you're going to schmooze and learning on the way. And you know what happens? You're going to end up rear-ending the car or the donkey in front of you. You're going to end up pulling off the road, end up in a ditch. You're going to end up not being safe and some listen, somebody's going to rob you on the way. So therefore, don't become too immersed in your Torah discussion, so much so that you're oblivious to what's happening around you. It's dangerous. You have one job. Go home, get dad, get your families, get back here. You don't have to finish Shas on the way. Second shot is, don't walk a haughty walk. Shot number two is, don't be impatient on the journey, don't be haughty. And number three is, He's worried, you know what's going to happen? As soon as they get out of that palace, they're going to look at it, oh, I can't believe it, that's crazy, that's Yosef, he's still alive. We're in big trouble. He may kill us, dad's going to kill us. This was all your fault. My fault? What are you talking about? This is all your, my fault? You're the one who spoke Russian. No, you're the one. You couldn't stand the dreamer. No, you hated the coat. He's worried that the second they take leave of him, they're going to blame one another. Alter gezuba derech means don't use the whole derech with rogas. Brogas. Don't spend the whole path being brogas at one another. Don't fight. Right? Earlier when he revealed himself to his brothers, he said, you think I hold this against you? You think you're so strong that you could have coordinated this? You're just puppets. You're just vehicles. You're just instruments of Hashem. This is all from Hashem. So he's telling them now that in terms of their way back. You're just instruments of Hashem. Hashem coordinated all, all of this to happen. I'm here because that was Hashem's will. So don't get caught up in blaming one another. You've got a job. Go home. Get dad. Come back. Come back down. The Rashbam says too, Don't worry about getting robbed. Just go and get back. The Ramban, the Orachayim, we have to finish here, but several different interpretations about Al-Tirgazu Badarach. Wishing everyone a wonderful week.